0: Hi, friends. Before we start today's story, I want to let you in on a not-so-secret secret. Making a podcast like True Crime is a lot of work. Like a full-time job on top of my other full-time job, it's a lot. And those are just the unpaid hours. I also have a small team that commits tons of paid hours to this project. And beyond labor, making a podcast is really expensive. Honestly, I really didn't understand how expensive it would be until I was knee deep. And at that point, I was going for the thing. So I mean, I'm recording in my closet right now because I don't have studio money, which is fine. But there are other things that cost money. Podcast equipment, editing, subscriptions, marketing materials, all of that. And Right now, it's coming directly out of my pocket. And I promise this isn't me complaining. I just want to be real with you about what it takes to create a project like this one. The reality is working for free and self-funding. It's just, it's really not going to be sustainable for us in the long run. And we really want to make truer crime sustainable. So if you really like truer crime and you believe in the importance of our work, I have a quick question. Would you be willing to consider supporting us on Patreon? Patreon is a monthly membership site that allows you to help us keep doing truer crime. The best part about Patreon is that even a small contribution has a direct impact on our ability to make episodes in the future. For $5 a month, you'd be directly supporting everything that goes into making an episode of truer crime. From the time it takes to research and write each episode to the production equipment and the editor who helps make each episode sound really good, even though we record in a closet. And even the marketing materials to help us spread the word about these stories. Your contribution supports All of this. And as a thank you, we'll be uploading extras and behind the scenes content that is only available to our patrons. If you become a patron at the time of this episode's release, you'll get access to my extended conversation with Josiah Sutton's mom, Carol Beatty, who I talked to for episode four. And whether you become a patron or just show your support through spreading the word about truer crime, thank you. I really couldn't do this without your support. And now on to today's episode. Please be aware that today's story contains references to suicide, gun violence, Child abuse and housing insecurity. Please take care while listening. I was in the third grade the year I first remember realizing that the bad stuff that happens on TV happened to real people. At the time, my mom worked at a small liberal arts college, and so we lived in on campus housing. At that point, my mom had spent most of her career working at different colleges and universities, and so at eight, I was already plenty comfortable in the company of university students who seemed to find me equal parts adorable and annoyingly talkative. My days as that kid that lived on campus were mostly warm. Like the time I'd request to perform in the college talent show. I sang the Lizzie McGuire theme song, duh. Or the time I went trick-or-treating through the residence hall. (laughs) Those suckers really gave me all their dorm candy. And there were also touches of absurdity. Like the time some drunk undergrad stole my bike and placed it in the middle of a frozen lake. Or the time when different students, also drunk, threw a couch out the window of a study lounge where it landed gracefully on top of our family's van. It was a unique life, for sure. But overall, it was one shielded from the scary things reporters droned on about on TV. But that was TV. Those things just didn't happen in real life. That is, until the day that a 21-year-old student disappeared from the campus where I lived. Within hours of her disappearance, she was reported missing, and a massive search was underway. The next day, they'd find her body in a dam, only a mile away. A short time after that, investigators would find her killer. It was awful. It was the type of horrifying event that the media jumps on. The woman, attractive, white, and blonde, had been abducted from a parking lot on campus. Her killer was a complete stranger, a parolee struggling with mental illness. As word spread, so did the community's fear. All of a sudden, folks were double-checking their door locks and watching everyone around them with a bit more suspicion. At eight, I was suddenly aware that the unimaginable wasn't just TV. In the years that followed, I'd spend long nights watching Nancy Grace and many days begging my mom for grocery store tabloids, getting media and messages that sold a certain story. Victims of violence, white women. Perpetrators of violence, scary strangers, monsters in the dark. And who to call for help when nightmare becomes reality? The police, of course. It would be a long time before I realized the truth that white women are among the least likely to be crime victims, that perpetrators are rarely strangers, and that police aren't nearly as good at finding answers as popular media leads us to believe. As it turns out, becoming a victim of crime is often far less random than it may seem. I discovered, upon closer examination, that our communities sit on a complex web of systems, many with widely gaping holes. Holes that pull in folks who are often quite different than those we usually see on TV. But who are these people? The ones who our systems fail and then promptly forget. As always, it's a question with many answers. But today we'll talk about one. Because this is the story of Relisha Rudd. I'm Celicia Stanton, and you're listening to Truer Crime. The day seemed to be going more or less like normal for Payne Elementary School social worker Mr. Workman. According to Michael Chandler writing for the Washington Post, Workman typically spent his days supporting students with behavioral disabilities, doing referrals for support services, stuff like that. And on this day, Workman left the school to follow up on one specific student, Relisha Rudd, a second grader who had been racking up absences, unexcused absences, According to the Post, Workman's journey began two weeks before, on March 5th. The start was pretty standard. A ping, an alert, a notice. Relisha had been absent, unexcused, five times. That was the content of the automatic notification, the kind the school social worker always received after a student missed enough school days without explanation. Workman already knew Relisha's family. He had worked closely with her brothers, and Relisha was one of 57 students at Payne Elementary whose family was struggling with homelessness. So after he learned about Relisha's absences, Workman did what he usually did in these cases and followed up with her family. And when he asked about Relisha's time away from his school, the family told him that Relisha was sick and currently under the care of a doctor. And yeah, that seems like a reasonable reason for a child to miss school— But to get the absences officially excused, Workman needed proper documentation. So the family gave him the phone number for Relisha's physician, Dr. Tatum. According to journalist Michael Chandler, over the next several days, Workman exchanged a number of calls with Dr. Tatum. Tatum would tell the social worker that yes, Relisha was under his care and that he was treating her for a neurological issue. But despite these phone calls, Workman was still having trouble getting a hold of the documentation he needed. First, Dr. Tatum said he would send the necessary paperwork over once Relisha's treatment had been completed. And then he provided a fax number, which couldn't be reached. Finally, by March 19th, Relisha had been gone for school for over four weeks. At that point, Workman finally decided enough was enough. He would go to the shelter where Relisha lived and Dr. Tatum worked to retrieve the documentation himself. But when he arrived and asked the shelter staff if he could speak with Dr. Tatum, Workman was met with confusion. There was no one named Dr. Tatum who worked there, they told him. Feeling a bit panicked at that point, Workman asked if there was anybody by the name of Tatum who worked at the shelter at all. This time, there was recognition. There was a Tatum employed by the shelter, but he wasn't a doctor. Khalil Tatum was the shelter's custodian. It was a nightmarish answer that would raise an even more horrifying question. Where was Relisha Rudd? Understanding everything that led up to this point and everything that would follow took tracing a long and twisted road through news coverage and interviews, government reports and celebrity talk shows. It's a journey I want to take you on, too. But to do that, you'll first need to get to know Relisha. My mom likes to say that as a kid, I was quick to correct anyone who got my name wrong. That's not my name. It's Celicia, came my quick reply to every mix-up or mispronunciation. And while I still feel like my mom's retelling makes me sound much sassier than I actually was, the point was this. My name was my name, and I wasn't afraid to correct folks. So when I read that Relisha hated when people got her name wrong, I got it. In 2014, Relisha Rudd, who lived in D.C., was eight. She loved Michael Jackson, Tinkerbell, dancing, and was just the right amount of sassy, according to Teresa Vargas of The Washington Post. A little girl, unafraid to ask for what she wanted, the cheerleading coach at the school Relisha attended through first grade would tell the Washington Post that Relisha came up to her once after watching other students practicing their cheers. Throwing her arms into the air, Relisha would spell out the word victory. She wanted the coach to see that she had what it took to be on the team. But despite Relisha's spunk, sass, and happy attitude, in her young life, she was already no stranger to hardship. According to Leslie Foster of WUSA 9, at the time of her disappearance, Relisha lived with her mother, Shamika, stepfather, Antonio, and two younger brothers in the southeast corner of the city at the D.C. General Family Shelter. John Colin Hill, writing for WAMU, would say that by the time 2014 had rolled around, the family had been living at the shelter for a year and a half, the result of a multi-generational struggle to escape poverty. And as I read about Relisha and her family, it struck me how heart-wrenchingly common these stories are. According to a report from the National Alliance to End Homelessness, despite D.C.'s commitment to place families like Relisha's into independent, long-term housing, from 2013 to 2014, D.C.'s homeless family population grew by 25%, while the number of permanent supportive housing options increased only 3%. It's a reality which left many children without safe and reliable places to sleep at night. Relisha Rudd was one of them. But the road that led Relisha and her loved ones to D.C. General Family Shelter was a long one. And there's this timeline put together by the Urban Institute that lays it all out. After Relisha was born in 2005, her family moved into an apartment in a neighborhood reeling from the weight of racism and poverty. When they moved in, it wasn't exactly the safest place for children. Then comes 2007, when Relisha was two years old. And Child Welfare gets a report saying the family's kids were inadequately fed and inadequately supervised. And that report, well, it kind of marked the start of a five-year stretch, a half-decade of housing instability. In that time, five separate landlords filed lease violation cases against the family. Then 2012 hit, and Shamiga Young, Relisha's 25-year-old mother, got another eviction notice. Only this time, they had nowhere new to go the family would end up living in a motel for three months before moving into the D.C. General Family Shelter. That's where they lived for a year and a half before March 19, 2014, the day when Payne Elementary School social worker Mr. Workman discovered that Relisha was missing. As I learned about Relisha and her family, it struck me that even though they used several social service programs, they still ultimately ended up living at a shelter. And this... It mirrors the stories of so many folks facing housing insecurity. It's a scary reality considering the fact that according to Boston University's School of Public Health, a lack of housing has been linked to higher risk for a bunch of horrifying outcomes, including, at worst, early death. And rarely are people experiencing houselessness dealing with only this stress. Substance abuse, poverty, and mental health struggles are just few of the many things placing strain on families like Relisha's. Without the right support, All of these things can spur cycles of instability that may be nearly impossible to escape. But perhaps it's a reality which says more about the conditions of people than it does about the people themselves. According to a 2020 article written by reporter Christian Zapata for DCist, nationally, Black people comprise 40% of the homeless population, despite being only 13% of the general public. And in D.C., Black residents make up nearly 48% of the general population, but 88% of people experiencing homelessness. To many working to end homelessness, systemic racism is part and parcel to chronic homelessness. As Lara Pukach, director of advocacy for Miriam's Kitchen, would tell the DCist, quote, ending homelessness in Black communities is a matter of ending homelessness altogether. And when systemic racism is a direct cause of chronic homelessness, and nearly half of those experiencing homelessness nationally are Black, then the stigma against the houseless becomes racialized. It seemed to me it was yet another cycle. Systemic racism fuels homelessness, which fuels more systemic racism, and around and around it goes. It really does function scarily well, I thought. But contrary to harmful stereotypes, many folks experience housing insecurity. And homeless, it doesn't need to look a certain way. People facing homelessness go to work and school. They have family and friends who deeply love them. And the same, of course, was true for Relisha. Outside of her mom, Shmika, and stepfather, Antonio, Relisha and her brothers would spend lots of time with their grandmother, Melissa, and their aunt, Ashley. So on March 19th, 2014, when the school social worker reported Relisha missing, it was those closest to Relisha who investigators spoke with first but the troubling thing was no one seemed to know that Relisha had even been missing. And here, I have to be honest and say the exact details of the police questioning who said what, when, and where, they vary quite a bit depending on the source. But here's what we do know, broadly speaking. According to a timeline put together by Jonkolin Hill and Ponzi Rooch for WAMU, police questioned Relisha's mom, Shamika, and stepdad, Antonio, in the family shelter's conference room. According to the podcast Through the Cracks, Antonio would say that he was completely unaware that Relisha was missing. He had been working on a construction project that had him away from the shelter quite a bit, and he would say that he was shocked to discover that Shamika had not laid eyes on Relisha in weeks. Shamika, for her part, would eventually admit that she hadn't seen her daughter since March 1st. But according to Leslie Foster of WUSA 9, she hadn't been concerned because she believed Relisha was with her aunt Ashley and grandmother, Melissa. According to a timeline from WAMU, later that same day, investigators arrived at Ashley's house. Ashley would tell reporter Johanna Lee that, quote, when the police showed up here with their guns drawn, that's when they finally told me Relisha was missing. I didn't even know my niece was missing. She had last seen Relisha a few weeks before on a day she cared for her at her home. While police were at Ashley's house, they also found Relisha's grandmother, Melissa, who they took back to the shelter conference room for questioning. According to reporter Johanna Lee, Melissa would tell police that her granddaughter wasn't missing. She would say that Shamika had agreed to let Relisha spend time with Khalil Tatum. And so finally, a picture starts to come together. Relisha had been with Khalil Tatum. But other than being D.C. General Shelter's custodian, who was he? Why had he been taking care of Alicia? and where was he now? As it turned out, Khalil Tatum was a close family friend. Despite the fact that relationships between shelter staff and residents were prohibited, Tatum was a warm man who the family liked. And to really understand how this came to be, it's important to remember that in 2014, the family had already been living at the shelter for 18 months. And D.C. General, well, it certainly didn't have the best reputation. According to reporting by journalist Johanna Lee for Inside Edition, at the time of Relisha's disappearance, D.C. General was the largest family shelter in D.C reportedly housing up to 250 families at a time. But despite its large capacity, the building's conditions were no place for anyone, much less young children. Lee would write that, quote, comments on the shelter's Facebook group described allegations of discount drug deals, sexual assaults, bedbugs, and spoiled food. Shamika and Melissa would tell Lee that Relisha herself called the shelter a trap house. And Teresa Vargas would write for the Washington Post that Relisha, quote, wanted out so desperately she would fake asthma attacks to stay at relatives' homes. For Relisha, time at school, time with family and friends, they meant an escape from a place she really hated. And Cleo Tatum, well, he was someone the family could lean on. According to writer Teresa Vargas and Lynn Bui writing for the Washington Post, over the months they'd spent at the shelter, Tatum took Relisha on lots of fun getaways, to the mall, to the movies, Each time, Relisha would come back on time, and sometimes even with gifts. Deshawn Tatum, Khalil's nephew, would even tell the Washington Post that Tatum treated Relisha like she was his own daughter. Shamika trusted Tatum. She'd even refer to him as Relisha's godfather to friends and family, a title that other kids at the shelter also affectionately called him. But the rest of the family, they didn't feel quite as comfortable with the relationship. At least not at first. Relisha's grandmother, Melissa, would say that in the beginning, she was wary. She didn't understand why Shamika would let a grown man, a non-family member especially, care for her daughter. Relisha's aunt, Ashley, felt similar. But as time passed, they'd warmed up to Tatum. Melissa would tell Inside Edition that she'd have conversations with Tatum when she visited Shamika and the kids at the shelter. She'd tell the local news, WUSA 9, that he'd even given her rides when she needed them. And ultimately, she'd say... I trusted him, I felt comfortable with him, and I don't trust everybody. And while it'd be easy to judge Relisha's family, her mom Shamika in particular, to say that her choice to let her daughter go off with a man who wasn't family was an example of reckless, bad parenting, I wondered how much recourse Shamika really felt she had. The shelter was no place for Relisha. She had made it clear that she hated being there, and really, I can't imagine any kid enjoying being there. And here was a man with a good reputation who was offering Relisha things that Shamika herself couldn't. Melissa would tell Inside Edition that while she believed that Shamika could have certainly made better choices regarding the time she spent with Tatum, ultimately, she believed that the choices she did make were Shamika's way of trying to provide a better, safer environment for her daughter. I couldn't help but consider how easy it is to condemn Shamika when you aren't actually Shamika. But... Regardless of all of this, the blame game wouldn't bring Relisha home. And the reality was that Relisha was probably with Khalil Tatum. Problem was, Khalil Tatum was nowhere to be found. Finally, investigators are able to track down security footage, which they hope will bring them closer to the answers they're looking for. The footage, which was captured several weeks earlier on February 26th, shows Tatum and Relisha in the hallway of a Holiday Inn. In it, the two can be seen casually walking side by side. Eventually, Tatum stops at a door, pulls out his keycard, and swipes it. The two walk into the room, and that's it. It's not much, but it's a visual confirmation that puts Tatum with Relisha on February 26th. Then police say they found evidence of another sighting of the two on March 1st. This time, Relisha and Tatum were seen walking at an entirely different hotel, the Days Inn. But... Things take a turn for the worse when investigators can't piece together any known whereabouts for Relisha after this March 1st sighting, which, remember, is nearly three weeks before Relisha was finally reported missing. But what they do find evidence for is harrowing. Just one day after Relisha and Cleo Tatum were spotted at the Days Inn, Tatum was seen making a number of purchases alone at a local store. Items which included 42-gallon trash bags and a shovel. And then, on March 20th, one day after the investigations began, law enforcement held a press conference, urging folks who may have information to come forward. And it's at this point that an Amber Alert is finally issued for Alicia. Three weeks after she was last seen, and a full day after she was reported missing. But even the Amber Alert, as little and as late as it was, came half-baked. While police would say that the Amber Alert was issued in D.C. and several surrounding states, investigative reporting by local news station WUSA 9 found that the Amber Alert had only been issued in D.C. When reporters questioned D.C. Police Chief Kathy Lanier about this at a March press conference, this is what she had to say. That's not true. I actually looked into that when I got that allegation. The Amber Alert was issued uh, as far north as Pennsylvania and Delaware and as far south as Florida. WUSA 9 would air the truth in a TV news segment. If that had
1: only been true, TV stations across the East Coast would have been broadcasting Relisha's disappearance. But our investigation found the Amber Alert was only activated in the District of Columbia. And last month, except for D.C., Maryland and Virginia, where stories had aired, when we checked our Gannett sister stations and CBS affiliates from Delaware and Pennsylvania to Florida, none had done a single story on Relisha Rudd as they would had an Amber Alert actually been issued in their states.
0: But all of this would come to light days into the investigation, at a point when hope was already dwindling. Because, according to reporter Jessica Schladebeck, writing for the NY Daily News, on the same day the Amber Alert was initially issued, investigators were able to track Tatum to the Red Roof Inn, where he and his wife Andrea Tatum had checked in two days prior. But... When they arrived, to everyone's shock and horror, there was no Khalil Tatum, but instead only his wife, Andrea Tatum, dead from a gunshot wound to the head. The discovery was devastating, both for Relisha's family, whose hopes of finding Relisha now seemed to be dwindling, and for Andrea Tatum's family, who were left confused and grief-stricken over their loss. Alexis Kelly, Andrea's daughter, would tell John Cullen Hill for the Wyoming podcast through the cracks that her mother was deeply loved, that she was outgoing, outspoken, and that she loved to laugh. The discovery of Andrea Tatum shifted the priorities of the D.C. police, and on March 27th, they announced that the search to find Relisha had evolved to a recovery mission. It was another way of saying that they no longer expected to find Relisha Rudd alive. And then on April 1st, after a body is found in D.C.'s Kenilworth Park, the investigation takes another shocking turn.
1: This is ABC 7 Breaking News.
0: First of six, multiple sources now confirmed to ABC 7. The body found inside Kenilworth Park is that of Khalil Tatum. He is the man accused of kidnapping eight-year-old Relisha Rudd, igniting a search that spread as far as Georgia. The park where his body was found is the same place D.C. police have spent four days searching for any signs of the eight-year-old girl. Khalil Tatum had been found dead from what appeared to be a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. The gun he used was the same gun used to kill Andrea Tatum. But Relisha, she was nowhere to be found. It seemed that Khalil Tatum had taken with his life the lingering hope for answers. In the months that followed, with no signs of Relisha, the responses were many. In the aftermath of the investigation, lots of folks wondered how something like this could happen. How could an eight-year-old girl who supposedly had the protection of so many, her family, the school system, the shelter, DC's Child and Family Services, police, just be gone without a trace? How had she been able to disappear in the first place? And... Why did it take weeks after she was last seen for an investigation to begin? It was a question that created mounting pressure, and under that pressure came an order from D.C. Mayor Vincent Gray for a full investigation into the city's response to Relisha's disappearance. But others still pointed the blame in an entirely different direction, namely at Relisha's mother, Shamiga Young. As weeks turned into months and months into years, Shamika continued to take the heat for what happened to Relisha, even receiving death threats from the public, according to WUSA 9. And while Shamika would lose custody of her remaining children following Relisha's disappearance, as I researched this story, I ran across a seemingly endless barrage of online commentators who believed that Shamika's kids should have been removed from her care far earlier, that doing so could have prevented Relisha's disappearance they'd often point to the fact that Shemika had previously dealt with child welfare concerns. And these claims, they did hold some water. The Washington Post reported that Child and Family Service officials had noted concerns of, quote, physical abuse, filthy living conditions, and a lack of food. But when I think of this, my mind immediately goes to the many complaints lodged against the D.C. General Family Shelter. Remember the reports of sexual assault, bedbugs, and spoiled food? The Washington Post would take it even farther in their own investigation, which discovered that shelter residents were even forced to go without heat or hot water, sometimes for weeks at a time. These complaints, these allegations, they seemed so similar, lining up one to one. Yet many seem more willing to criticize a 20-something-year-old mother trapped in poverty than a government-run institution whose resources likely dwarfed those of Shamika Young. It all reminded me of an entirely different episode I wrote for True Crime, our first episode on Darlie Rudier. And what had struck me as I read about Darlie was just how much entertainment value there was in condemning mothers. And if Shamika Young can be compared to Darlie Rudier at all, it's important to note that Shamika, who is poor and black, faces the additional barriers of racism and classism on top of it all. I found one example particularly horrifying an episode of The Steve Wilkos Show. And if you're like me and you've never heard of Steve Wilkos, a quick Google search will tell you everything you need to know. The show, Predictably Stars, host Steve Wilkos, a former Chicago cop and security guard from The Jerry Springer Show. And on his show, which, let's be honest, is just Jerry Springer but make it angrier, Wilkos promises to stand up for everyday people and help viewers in need. The clip that caught my attention, though, is one The Steve Wilco Show uploaded to their YouTube channel. It's titled The Disappearance of Relisha Rudd. The video, which has amassed over 1.6 million views, opens with the crowd booing and jeering as Shamika walks on stage. She's there because Antonio, Relisha's stepdad, and Melissa, Relisha's grandmother, have agreed to take a lie detector test as a way to prove they had no involvement with Relisha's disappearance. Steve Welkos reads Antonio's results.
1: Did you participate in any way in the disappearance of Relisha? You answered no. Have you ever had any sexual physical contact with Relisha? You answered no. Did you ever strike any of your children leaving marks or bruises? You answered no. The results came back the same to each and every question, and they came back that Antonio told the truth.
0: Watching this, I had the biggest pit in my stomach. A girl was missing and her disappearance was being exploited by the media, by the public for cheap entertainment. It was sickening. After the lie detector results were read, Antonio asked Shamika why she doesn't take the test. Shamika says she doesn't have to, that she doesn't want to. It's a choice I honestly might make too. As lie detectors have been proven to have no real validity, they're not even admissible in court. Steve Wilkos jumps in at this point, and at first he seems to defend Shamika.
1: You don't have to take a test, but you're not eliminating yourself as a suspect in the disappearance. Let of Let me tell daughter. you something. Okay. I talk to the police. I talk to the police day to day, and I'm not. They don't never discuss me. They discuss other people.
0: It's at this point that the clip really takes a turn for the worse. Here's what happened next.
1: I was the police, and I investigated murders, crimes against children. And I'll tell you right now, you would be number one on my list of people I'd be looking at. You,
0: At this point, Shamika defends herself, saying that the police already eliminated her as a suspect. The back and forth continues with Steve Boko saying she still has a good chance of being locked up. What happens next is almost stranger than fiction, as Steve Wilkos makes the completely unsubstantiated claim that maybe Shamika killed Khalil Tatum. And it leads to a pretty dramatic conclusion.
1: You had an inappropriate relationship Ooh. with that man. I did. And you're lucky. You're lucky. I'm lucky you're what? You're saying, you don't believe that he killed himself? I don't. You can't yeah. shoot yourself two That's times right. in the head. That's right. Maybe somebody else did it for him, huh? Okay. So who did it? I ain't no murderer. There ain't no murderer, huh? Nope. You ain't no murderer, you say. And you know what? You're no good
0: mother either. Get the f out my stage. It made me sad to think that this was the value that we as a society place on little girls like Relisha. The cursing out a young black mother on stage is fun to watch. For me, this is true crime at its worst. Devoid of any compassion or care focused instead on ratings, rage, and punishment. According to Jonklin Hill of WAMU, this would be the last time Shamika agreed to sit down with any media. And while Shamika took the heat, the city of D.C. took none. Five months after D.C. Mayor Vincent Gray ordered an investigation into the city's response to Relisha's disappearance, the office of the deputy mayor would release a report documenting their findings. This report, which identified several areas as systemic failure, would ultimately conclude that, quote, the review team did not find evidence that these tragic events were preventable. And this, well, I found it pretty infuriating. Relisha's case, at face value, seemed full of preventable measures. And so I read the whole report. And as I did, I found myself in a somewhat constant state of shock. For starters, the report opened by saying that, quote, staff from the deputy mayor's offices reviewed the family's files from all relevant service providers and interviewed 16 individuals. But because the review took place within the context of an ongoing criminal investigation, the reviewers did not have access to the information in the criminal investigative file or attempt to interview Relisha Rudd's mother. And I'm sorry, but what? How is it even possible that a comprehensive review on this case can even be done without access to the investigative file, without speaking with Relisha Rudd's mother? At that point, we're talking about just completely leaving out critical details. But also, I thought, the folks completing this review, they're the literal government. So sure, maybe there's an argument to be made that the public shouldn't have access to an investigative file during an ongoing case, The government conducting this review can't even get access to the police file months later? Not even this small group of people? It was interesting to me that the policies of law enforcement that had thus far failed to do its job, find Relisha or at least find out what happened to her, were being prioritized over the chance to conduct a truly comprehensive review, which could potentially prevent this sort of tragic event from happening ever again. But apparently, information sharing would be a recurring issue. The report would also note that, quote, from September 2013 through March 2014, the deputy mayors found that multiple human service agencies were engaged with the family. The agencies knew of the involvement of the other agencies, but did not consistently share information or consistently convene team meetings, nor did they seek the consent of family members to share information. Therefore, information about the family's strengths and needs known by one agency was not fully communicated to others, and the services were not coordinated. Relisha's family situation was complex. They were dealing with many different simultaneous stressors and hardships. So sharing information, it's, it's vital to giving them the holistic services and support that they need. And I mean, the report went on and on this way, listing off finding after finding hole after hole that Relisha and her family fell through. From the shelter staff who, quote, did not receive clinical supervision on engaging with families with complex needs, to the case notes taken on Relish's family, which, quote, did not contain enough detail to allow new staff to quickly and comprehensively understand the family's history and circumstances. The errors were many. But to the report's credit, after each finding, they'd list off a number of suggested reforms, ways to plug the holes for future families. But ultimately, their conclusion was the same. They'd write, even if all the policy recommendations in this report had been in place and fully implemented, the review team did not find evidence that these tragic events were preventable. The report would also state that large family shelters are no place to raise children and that the city needs to aggressively work towards other solutions for families in order to eliminate the need for these shelters in the first place. How ironic. The city of D.C. would say in one breath that homeless shelters are no place for families and in the next, that Relisha's disappearance was inevitable. is a sentiment which some social welfare experts completely disagree with, including folks at the Urban Institute who believe that a supportive housing program could have saved Relisha's life. In an article titled Reimagining Life for Relisha Rudd, Sarah Gillespie, Mary Kay Cunningham, and Lionel Foster displayed two side-by-side timelines of Relisha's life. On the left, is Relisha's story as we know it. On the right is a reimagined timeline, one where Relisha and her family never end up in D.C. general family shelter in the first place. In this reimagined view, the authors propose something new. What if instead of five years of housing instability, Relisha's family had instead been referred to supportive housing? But what is supportive housing? Well, the authors write that Quote, supportive housing is designed for individuals and families with the most complex challenges, those who are stuck in the revolving door of homeless shelters and crisis services. It pays the rent and provides additional assistance that can keep families in their homes. It offers safe, permanent, subsidized housing and services that are designed to end the trauma families experience during years of involvement with multiple systems and service plans. Supportive housing is holistic. And it also doesn't leave folks behind. In instances where challenges may prevent a family from paying their rent, they keep their housing. It's an approach which affirms the humanity of people by saying housing is a human right. And it's one that folks at the Urban Institute believe could have changed Relisha's story entirely. In the years since Relisha's disappearance, some things have changed and some remain the same. In 2018, the D.C. General Family Shelter closed for good. And according to Sam Collins, writing for the Washington Informer, 80 short-term family housing units were opened in its place. An annual report from the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments found that as of June 2020, the number of folks experiencing homelessness in D.C. fell for the fifth consecutive year. A good start. But still... It's been more than seven years since the day Relisha was reported missing. And tragically, she remains unfound. And still, no one knows what happened to her. In 2020, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children released an age-progressed photo showing what Relisha may look like today. You can, of course, access the image on our website, truercrimepodcast.com. The photo Is a gut wrenching reminder of what could have been, what should have been. Today, Relisha would be 15 years old. She should be in high school, making TikToks with her friends, cheering at sports games, bossing around her little brothers, but she's not. And whose fault is it? It's a question Shannon Smith, Relisha's former cheerleading coach, would answer for the Washington Post, saying, Who failed Relisha? I believe everybody failed that girl. The school, the system, the doctors, the police, and everybody else that should have had something to do with her. Relisha's life mattered. And she deserved so much more than the hand she was dealt. Aren't all children deserving of safety no matter the resources they're born with? Don't we all deserve the chance to grow up? These questions are significant. Because in the years since Relisha's disappearance, her story has fueled attention towards what some folks are calling other Relishas, the many, many kids harmed by systems that are not solid enough to protect them. It all points towards a question with life or death stakes. How many more Relishas? How many more until we decide enough is enough? In compiling action items related to Relisha's story, I was unfortunately unable to find anywhere that we could directly support Relisha's family. So instead, I want to direct you towards Miriam's Kitchen, an organization in the D.C. area which works to support families like Relisha's. Their goal is to end chronic homelessness in D.C., and they do that through a supportive housing model like the one I mentioned in today's episode. Their services include free meal distribution, case management, a therapeutic art space, street outreach, system change and advocacy, and permanent supportive housing support. You can donate and learn more about all they do at miriamskitchen.org. I also recommend you look into housing support organizations in your own community. If you live in Minneapolis like me, I recommend Zaka, a grassroots organization that is community-trusted and provides direct and rapid assistance to those facing poverty, the threat of eviction and displacement, and unsheltered homelessness. You can learn more and donate at zacah.org. Before we close out, I want to highlight a few key resources that were critical to the creation of this episode. First, the team of reporters at the Washington Post, who followed this case and published numerous articles referenced in today's story. In particular, I'd like to thank Teresa Vargas, who wrote or co wrote numerous pieces on Relisha. Next, The Urban Institute's piece, Reimagining Life for Relisha Rudd by Sarah Gillespie, Mary K. Cunningham, and Lionel Foster. This resource was so helpful in learning about supportive housing and guiding me through how supportive housing could have changed the trajectory of Relisha's life. Finally, Inside Edition's article, Six Years on, Family of Relisha Rudd Still Has Many Unanswered Questions About Eight-Year-Old's Disappearance by Johanna Lee, was one of the many great resources that allowed me to hear direct perspectives of those closest to Relisha. As always, you can find a full list of sources used in this episode on the show notes for this episode on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. There's so much more to Relisha's story than I was able to fit in today's episode. So if you'd like to learn more, I highly recommend Wemu and PRX's podcast, Through the Cracks. The podcast has eight episodes featuring interviews with many of those closest to Relisha. And it goes deep into all the systems that failed to protect and support her and her family. Lastly, if you love true crime, And want more from us between episodes, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Truer Crime Pod. There you'll find some behind-the-scenes content, additional resources, episode highlights, and more.